Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. that want to claim you. Orthodox Jews and fundamentalist Christians, they want to claim you as a demon. Secular feminists want to claim you as a symbol of female empowerment. Young Jewish witches on TikTok, they want to claim your myth as for Jewish people only. Then there are non-Jewish witches who claim you as their patron goddess. Lilith, who are you, really? Who is Lilith? What a wonderful question. This is Professor Nathaniel Berman. He's the Rahel Varnhagen Professor of International Affairs, Law, and Modern Culture and Religious Studies at Brown University. I'm a law professor for 20 years, and I'm now a religious studies professor um, at Brown. These are two, field, two fields that are, seem to be quite different from each other, that I, I write and I continue to write in both fields. He's the author of Divine and Demonic in the Poetic Mythology of the Zohar the other side of Kabbalah. So Lilith is a creature of our imaginations and everyone's imagination is different. And that's how many different Liliths there are. Lilith is also a being who has been with humanity for a long time. So I'm reluctant to say that she is simply a product of our minds because she has been living with us for a very, very long time. And who are we to say that she is not real in some sense? Lilith, who are you, really? You see these two images? The image on the right, it's often called Lilith, although again, it's unclear whether it actually depicts Lilith or a different goddess. And on the other side is this very famous picture of a Kabbalist. And I like to put these two together. Here's this Kabbalist, right, who's this old guy. He's sitting, he's crouched over, and he's holding the tree of the Spirot and putting her back into Judaism after she was kicked out of Judaism, putting her back, and yet trying to deal with her. And then there's her who's like free and powerful. And I love this juxtaposition, Lilith sort of transcending any attempt to imprison her in systems or cultures. Usually I'll cut down my interviews to 20 or 30 minutes, but I've decided to keep most of the director's cut. But if you want to see the director's cut, make sure you check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash witchesandwine. Lilith has been known to humanity at least as far back as the third millennium BC. Uh, she first appears in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia, which is what uh, today is called Iraq, um, but have, was the cradle of many different important civilizations in ancient times. She has lived with a certain sector or sectors of humankind 
ever since and continues unto this very day to live with us. Let me say this, is that the question of whether when Lilith first appeared to humanity, whether she first appeared as a goddess or as a demoness is something that scholars debate. We don't really know. Was she a demon, a demoness who was then venerated as a goddess? Or what, did she first appear as a goddess who was then degraded into a demoness? Maybe the very difference between a goddess and a demoness is something that only appeared later in human history. And maybe that very difference is the kind of difference that Lilith and the, our image of Lilith challenges is that very difference between gods and demons or goddesses and demonesses. Now, the way that most people are venerating Lilith right now is they see her as a misunderstood, a misunderstood feminine, powerful figure. When you say, was she a goddess first? Was she a demoness first? What exactly do you mean by that? Let me respond by picking up on some things that you said. You said that people feel that she's a misunderstood figure. And I think that we should see that as part of her nature, is that she's a powerful figure who seems to defy classification as either good or bad, as either goddess or demoness. I think that's part of what Lilith, what Lilith means in the human imagination is this figure who defies some of those boundaries that we have set up. This question of what tradition does Lilith belong to? Um, so Lilith, as I said, it first appears to humanity in the third millennium, sometime in the third millennium BC, as far as we know, maybe even earlier, which is about uh, at least a thousand or maybe 2000 years before I Israelite religion, before Judaism in some form appears. So she long predates what would eventually become Judaism and certainly what would eventually become Christianity. She then becomes part of the Jewish imagination, right? But she really comes from outside. Um, and becoming part of the Jewish imagination is something that happens gradually. She makes one appearance in the Hebrew Bible, although it's a little bit uncertain about whether it, it really is a reference to her, but it seems to be. That's probably in, say, the sixth century BC. Then she makes an appearance in the Talmud, which is much, much later. In the, in the first few centuries AD. She appears in the Talmud in some writings by the rabbis during the Talmudic period. She appears in Mesopotamia among Jewish communities where they were writing magical incantation bowls to ward off demons, including Lilith. And then all the tales about Lilith first flower in the later Middle Ages in the ninth century and then following, tales about Lilith start flourishing, and she really begins to occupy a really powerful central role in the Jewish imagination with Kabbalah, which emerges uh, in France and Spain in the 12th and 13th centuries. She becomes, from being this demoness to becoming the, 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 the consort of the chief 
diabolical figure in Judaism named Samael. Um, and eventually she even is described as the concubine or mistress of God himself. So she has, she has a long history um, in the Jewish imagination, but keep remembering that she predates the Jewish imagination by at least a thousand or 2000 years. And as I say, part of the reason that she, she appeals to the imagination is because she transcends all the boxes that people try to put her in. Good, evil, goddess, demoness, Jewish, not Jewish. She seems to defy those categories. This is something that has happened with renewed vigor in the last, I'd say, now a long time, probably since the early 70s, with the second wave feminism, the Jewish branch of second wave feminism, looking at the Jewish tradition and trying to see what is there in the Jewish tradition, which is, can be quite patriarchal, what is there in the Jewish tradition that can be reclaimed for feminism? Lilith seemed to present an obvious example as a powerful female figure who defies patriarchal authority. And so that's how she became now for Jewish feminists um, a very, very important figure as something in the tradition that also defies the tradition, which is what Jewish feminists often try to do, and feminists in general, looking at a tradition that was predominantly patriarchal, trying to figure out what is in there that's subversive, that survived sort of patriarchal repression. Well, that, that, that would be a whole uh, uh, lifetime of study in itself. Um, let's see if I can say it very quickly. The word Kabbalah um, simply means reception. So the, from the word Kabbalah, you won't really get much of what it means. And the word Kabbalah existed long before it was applied to Jewish mysticism of any kind. Um, it simply means reception. If you go to Israel and you go to a hotel, you'll see at the desk it says in Hebrew, Kabbalah. And it doesn't mean anything about mysticism. It means this is the reception where you check in. It simply means reception. What, when people say Kabbalah, they, and it's a term that's applied to a broad range of mystical and mythological movements in Judaism, in a historically specific sense, there are movements that arose, or that first appear on the scene, at least, in the historical record in the late 12th century in Provence in southern France. Then they migrate over the border into Spain and flourishes in Catalonia and Castile in Spain in the 13th century, um, and culminates in the production of this this huge sprawling work written in Aramaic and Castile in the late 13th century called the Sefer Azor, the Book of Splendor. Um, then for the next seven centuries up till this very day, Kabbalah has flourished. There have been periodic phases where it's renewed itself and, and innovative systems have come out. But the cradle of Kabbalah is really in France and Spain, 12th and 13th century. Um, and Kabbalah has, has lots of dimensions. It has mystical dimensions of aspirations for visions of the divine and union with the divine. And it also has a very, very strong mythological dimension uh, with female and male divine figures. In the original Kabbalistic text, they're never called gods and goddesses because that would seem to be 
too much at odds with normative Judaism. But in essence, that's what they are. They're female and male divine figures. Um, and in the basic Kabbalistic mythological world, there are at least five of them. <laughs> Two male-female couples and one figure above them who is called the Holy Ancient One. So there's the Holy Ancient One, he's the, the top guy. Then there are two figures called the, the Sublime Mother and the Sublime Father. Then there are two figures below them who are really their children, and their names are the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah, the Presence. And they are also a couple. The two male-female couples are couples in the full sense of the word, and in this book that I described, the Book of Splendor, the Sefer Azar, there are lengthy and sometimes graphic descriptions of their sexual relations. This comes as a shock to, yes, this comes as a shock to many Jews, even to many Orthodox Jews who didn't study Kabbalah. When you tell them about the stuff they are, it can rock their world. I, just to say something about myself, I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Um, I went to Orthodox Jewish schools my whole growing up period. I discovered Kabbalah when I was in my early 20s, and I couldn't believe it. I'd been through at least 13 years of formal Orthodox Jewish schooling, and I had no idea, no idea that this existed. And I have spent the decades since then just immersed in it, and I find it endlessly delightful and challenging and it still knocks my socks off every time I open up a book. So I don't even put on socks anymore. I just, because I know they're gonna be knocked off. Why is it so different than the Old Testament? And it's hard to uh, give a, a single answer to it, but let's put it this way. I'm gonna say something about Kabbalah that I, I said about Lilith. We, in Kabbalah, you often have the feeling that they're going back to some kind of mythology that predates the Bible. And they were undoubtedly not doing it consciously. These guys were sitting in Spain. They probably looked like, you know, very pious Jews. And, but it was a movement of people who had let their imaginations free. There are traces of that stuff in rabbinic by rabbinic, I mean the Talmudic era in the first few centuries AD. Um, there are traces of it and traces of it. Right before Kabbalah started going, there was a period in which um, rationalist philosophy dominated Jewish intellectual life. Um, and the Kabbalists come right after that. So they come right after a period in which all mythological traces were being repressed, and they come right after that, and it explodes with imagination by letting their imaginations free, they reinvent very, very ancient mythologies um, that seem to have, you know, you look at Kabbalistic materials and you find echoes of very ancient mythologies. They undoubtedly didn't know about those mythologies, but maybe there's something in the human psyche or in the human experience, right? Or if you're a believer in cosmological reality, that they were able to tap into. And then they read it back into the Bible. So when they, when the Kabbalists read the Bible, they find in it these male and female divine beings and the story of their 
coming together and drifting apart and desire for each other and all sorts of things. You've written a book, so it's divine and demonic in the poetic mythology, the Zohar, the other side, and you put it in quotes, of Kabbalah. I thought, oh, why is the other side in quotes? And it turns out that there is this amazing, and when I say amazing, it's like so different from what the Old Testament considers to be good versus evil. There is a completely different feel to what the other side is or what it means in Kabbalah. Could you explain that to us? I'm glad you asked about the other side. I always capitalize it when I write about it. And it's actually simply the translation of an Aramaic term, right? And now you and anyone who's watching this can learn some Aramaic because Aramaic is a wonderful language and the Zohar is written in Aramaic. And so here's an Aramaic lesson, the Sitra Ahara. Can you say that? Sitra Ahara? Sitra Ahara. Now Sitra Ahara, all it means is the other side. That's all it means, right? And it is one of the two most common words that the Kabbalists use to describe the demonic. The demonic dimension of the cosmos is called the other side, the sitra achra. Sitra is a word for side, achra means other. Part of the reason that I really like this term is because a lot of things that people think about today and have been really been thinking about for, you know, throughout the past century is how to relate to the other, other ethnicities, other races, other genders, other sexualities, other species, that the question of otherness, of alterity, has been something that has really preoccupied a lot of Western thinkers and thinkers around the world, really. But I think people in the West often have trouble with otherness, so they think about it a lot. How do we relate to the, the other? And often when, they, when people talk the way, they capitalize the word other. What really strikes me is that this thinking about how to relate to otherness has this Kabbalistic history. And the very term, the other side, it's so interesting to me because the term the other side is very neutral. say the evil side. They also call it the evil side. But the, the term the other side is utterly neutral. And, and actually also relativistic, right? And so when you say to yourself, what is it, is it the other side of? Well, it's the other side of the divine. The demonic is the other side of the divine. It implies that the whole includes both of them. If there are two sides, well, then the whole must include both sides. And a lot of what goes on in the Zohar in relationship to the demonic is really struggling with this question. Here's the question. If you are a monotheist, you believe there's one God, and you say to yourself, how can there be evil? So this is the, this is the problem that every monotheistic religion is obsessed with. How can there be evil if there is oneness? The topic is called theodicy. Now, Everyone has an answer, the philosophers have their answers, everybody has an answer, everybody has some kind of answer. In Kabbalah, they don't give you an answer in the sense of trying to make it okay. But the philosophers always want to make it okay. You think, how can there be, how can there be an all-powerful good God if we, 
if we look at the world and we see the world, there's so much suffering and evil and, and terrible things going on every day of the week. And the philosophers have all kinds of answers. And to my mind, none of those answers are persuasive. Kabbalah, or at least the Zohar specifically, and I'd say not all of Kabbalah, but the Zohar specifically, doesn't really try to answer that question, but gives you a myth of it. They say, well, how can there be evil? Let me tell you how. Something goes wrong within the divine. There's something within the divine, there's some mishap that produces a byproduct. And from that byproduct, a whole demonic world gets built up. Chief example that they give is divine anger. We know in the Old Testament, God gets angry a lot. What happens to that anger, right? Well, in the Zohar, there are descriptions. They, they say the anger of God is like fire. And when there's fire, there's smoke. Now imagine yourself at night around a campfire. It's late at night. You've had a couple of glasses of wine. You start looking at the smoke coming out of your campfire. And what happens? You start looking at the smoke and you start seeing maybe forms in the smoke. And they, there's a description of the saying that in that smoke, there starts appearing figures. You start seeing figures in that smoke. And then the figures start taking form. And the forms are male and female. And those two forms, they say, are Samael and Lilith, the male and female devils. So the demonic realm is a product of God, but then comes to oppose God. They turn the question into a story. You, the question is, the philosopher's question is, how can there be evil in a world if God is all good and all powerful? God is all powerful, gets angry, something goes wrong. Anger produces all kinds of unintended consequences, like human anger. We all know that when we get angry, most of us, we often get disproportionately angry to the provocation. And we also know that sometimes our excessive anger has consequences that we don't intend. I'm sure there are saints out there who that doesn't happen to. Everybody else it happens to. I get really angry. I start flailing my arm around. And then it turns out there's somebody behind me that I hit by mistake because I was out of control because of my anger. That's kind of the, the way in which they tell the story about how evil arises. It's a consequence of a mishap, a, a, an unattended byproduct of something in the divine. And that other thing then becomes the other side. And the goal of Kabbalistic practice is to somehow reintegrate, reunite the other side with the divine side, to sort of like undo those processes and bring it back into the divine. And to, to, to stress some things, in, in these Kabbalistic myths of the origin of evil, evil then becomes very real. Mm -hmm. So although Samael and Lilith are byproducts of divine anger, they then acquire independence and are really evil, can be really evil, actual evil. The Kabbalists present you with a paradox. They say two things which seem to be contradictory. One, that the, these devil figures, Samael Lilith, come from God. And two, they are opposed to God. This paradox is 
something that many of us feel today. So we live in a time today of great polarization of our, in our society, political polarization, racial polarization, uh, cultural polarization, all kinds of polarization in which dialogue can be very, very difficult. Many of us find it very difficult, for example, to have dialogue with people of opposite political persuasions today. Very difficult, if not impossible. And yet many of us, many of the same people feel like I just can't talk to my political opponents because I share nothing with them. Many of those same people also feel, but at the end of the day, I'm against hate. I'm against hate. I'm against polarization. And, and they live with that contradiction. These people are absolutely my enemy because they, their values are diametrically opposed to mine. I, maybe I don't hate them, I certainly hate their values. And yet, I also believe in oneness. I believe in the oneness of humanity. How do I reconcile those two, those two things? Um, it's a thing that I think today in 2020, a lot of us are living with in a very, very painful, we are living that contradiction politically and culturally in all kinds of ways that the Kabbalists lived and continue to live with as a sort of theological, mythological matter. I say there is that ambivalence, right? And ambivalence is, a, is an important word here. So let's take Lilith. Let's go back to Lilith. Lilith is, in, in Kabbalah, for example, she is clearly a deviless. She's the female devil. And yet, and yet, she has a very fraught relationship with her divine counterpart, who is the Shekhinah, who is this divine female for the the, the key divine female persona called the Shekhinah, which literally means she who dwells, would probably be the closest thing to a literal translation. The Shekhinah, who is the bride of the Blessed Holy One, so she is the bride of the main, main uh, divine male figure who's the object of religious worship. And it turns out that the Shekhinah and Lilith are very closely related. Sometimes it seems as though they're twins, even. They're actually described in one place in the Zohar as sisters. Um, there is also at least one passage in the Zohar where sh the Shekhinah is described physically like Lilith, having long hair and long nails, and like she gets transformed when she is angry or filled with judgment. She gets transformed into a Lilith figure. The Shekhinah is identified with the moon, as many goddesses throughout mythological history have been identified with. And Lilith is said to come out when the moon is, when the moon is absent, when the moon is covered, when the moon has waned so much that she disappears. Sometimes Lilith is identified with Venus. Venus is as the brightest object in the sky at night, except for the moon. And actually sometimes, at sometimes at night, if you look at the at the night sky, sometimes you see Venus right next to the moon. And I, you, I, when I see that, I feel like the Kabbalists were looking at that and were thinking about the relationship to the Shekhinah and Lilith when they looked at the sky. There are these stories in the Zohar and in other Kabbalistic writings of the same period in which 
the blessed holy one gets angry with his bride. There's actually a description of the Zohar of the king, the blessed holy one, sending away the Shekhinah and taking on Lilith as his consort. It's an amazing passage. And all the later commentators are shocked and they try to explain why this, it doesn't say what it seems to say, but it does say it. There's another Kabbalist around from around the same period named uh, Joseph of Hamadan, who describes Lilith as the mistress, the secret mistress of, of the Blessed Holy One. And he only visits her at night. He's with his wife, the Shekhinah, during the day, and it's very public. And out of respect for his wife, I mean, not so respectful, but anyway, he visits his mistress only at night. She says to him, it's an amazing passage, she says to him, I will only continue our relationship if my children rule with your children. And he agrees to it. And it's a long story, but I'll just cut to the bottom line is that this Kabbalist says, that's why he says, King David, who is the, you know, the king in Jewish history and who is, is the legendary ancestor of the person who will eventually be the Messiah, King David's foremother was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. The rabbis have a lot of trouble with it and try to explain how this could be, right? This Kabbalist says, you know why? It's because of this deal that the Blessed Holy One made with his mistress. And that's why King David was from a non-Israelite lineage and that's who the Messiah is. And the thing I love about the story is it means that the Messianic era is a product of the mingling of nations. It's when the divine and the demonic come together, literally the divine and the demonic, when you know two nations come together, that's, that's where the Messiah comes from. It's a mingling of, it's a reunification of that which history has, has torn apart. If there are two books on Kabbalah, there are probably at least five opinions about the nature of God in those two books, right? Um, so I wouldn't, anyone who tells you Kabbalah says X or Y, you know that they're not being accurate because Kabbalah is, you have to look at a specific writing and a specific text. But I'll, and, and also specific interpretations. But I'm giving you my interpretation of Kabbalah as expressed in the Zohar, which is one sort of anthology of works at a very specific time, and I'm giving you my specific interpretation. This is the academic in me trying to be careful. In the Zohar, the what is God is, a, is the unification of all these figures. The Zohar describes this figure and that figure and their interrelationships and their they, they're torn asunder and they come apart. And often at the end of such a paragraph, and here's another, here's your second Aramaic lesson. It says, v'kolachad, v'kolachad. Can you say that? V'kolachad. 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 And that means, and all is one. It's sort of the opposite of Sitra Achra. So now I've taught you two Aramaic phrases. One is the other side, Sitra Achra, and the other, in a way, is the opposite. They call Achad and all is one, right? And, and there is what the divine is, this unification of this multiplicity. In fact, the Zohar uses another phrase, well, I won't make you say it, but 
uh, called the secret of faith, the Raza de Mehemnuta. The Raza de Mehemnuta, the secret of faith, is a phrase that the Zohar talks about a lot. And what it means by that is not something that you believe in, like it's not a proposition that you can assent to or not assent to. It really refers to this participation in a process of unification. And the divine is really this, this unifi unification of this multiplicity in the Zohar, right? And all of Kabbalistic practice is about trying to unify the divine because the divine has been torn apart. So, and so here's the way it works in, in my reading of this. There is a, the conventional view of God in which God is perfect and transcendent and all good and all powerful and basically doesn't need us because God is just perfect. And then you look at the world and the world is torn apart and there's evil and suffering and war and conflict and hatred. I think that what the Kabbalists of the Zohar were saying is, you know, if the world is torn apart, that must mean that God is also torn apart. If, the, if God is the world, if the world is somehow a, a, in God or a product of God or infused with God and the world is torn apart, it must mean that there is a rupture, breakage, tragedy within the divine. Either we and God are all in it together. If the world is torn apart, our job is to try to put it together and in putting it together, we are putting God together as well. So sometimes I say, as, sort of as a joke, but I don't really mean it completely as a joke. If somebody says, is Judaism monothe a monotheism? I say, we're working on it. So a Kabbalist, before a Kabbalist performs any ritual performance in Judaism, a Kabbalist will say a formula that starts off like this, and I'll say it in Aramaic, but I'll, I'll explain it. It starts off, it's actually a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic. Shechinte. I'm not gonna ask you to say that. <laughs> and what it means is for the sake of the unification of the Blessed Holy One and his Shechina. I am perform then, and then it goes on. I'm performing this ritual thing in order to bring about their unification. And the implication is they're not unified now. And when I do something good, I give charity, I, whatever it is I do, whatever ritual performance, I pray in the morning, give charity, I study, I'm nice to somebody, I do various kinds of ritual performances within in Jewish, in Jewish practice, I say that. I'm doing this for the sake of the unification of these figures because they have been torn apart. And you, the human action plays a role in it. And, and here's where it leads into uh, a word that you may know, that a lot of people know, called tikkun. Tikkun means repair, um, and it refers to this process of repairing the ruptures in the divine. In recent times, over the last number of decades, the word tikkun, repair, has come to mean in Jewish circles doing social justice action. In other words, repairing the world. The idea is that social justice actions brings the world together. In many Jewish circles, secular Jewish circles, that word is used to mean social justice act work. But it really comes from a Kabbalistic idea that in performing social justice work, you're healing the cosmos and healing the divine.
If you're venerating Lilith, are you not getting in the way of the reunification? Okay, well, that's a very good question. So let me give you two answers. One answer would be Lilith is the other side of the Shekhinah, the divine female persona. And as long as they're separate, the Shekhinah is not healed. The only way the Shekhinah can be healed is if she's brought together with her other side, which is Lilith. The very existence of an opposition between the Shekhinah, the divine female, and Lilith, who's the demonic female, as long as there is that opposition, the world is not healed. And they have to be brought together because the idea is they're originally one. That's one answer. So that the that that as long as you say Lilith, I'm not going to deal with Lilith, I'm not going to say her name, she's evil, we denounce her. We're keeping the Shekhinah in a state of rupture. She's being separated from part of herself. And she has to be healed. In the same way that for example, in psychoanalysis, people, what, what a psychoanalyst, what psychoanalysis is, is it's trying to bring up the things that are in your id and to reunite them with your ego. Because as long as they're in your id, they're going to make you suffer. But when they're reunited, that's how you heal. So that's one answer. Second answer. The second answer would be this. The idea that Lilith is evil and only emerges as an evil byproduct of divine anger, many feminists would say, is a patriarchal attempt to dominate her. And that this, that this whole myth that Lilith is evil, right, is itself something that needs to be undone. And that her existence, right, is the is the is the source or the wellspring the reservoir of resistance to some of these patriarchal myths think of the myth i told you about the god who chooses lilith as his mistress it's not a very nice image of god so so the the feminist reading of these myths is well the the lilith herself if you're a believer or the image of lilith if you're not is, is a place of resistance, right? Let's start with Lilith. And maybe rather than Lilith being re-embraced into the Shekhinah, maybe it should work the other way. Maybe Lilith as this independent figure, strong female figure, maybe the Shekhinah is her fallen form rather than the opposite way around. So as I said, Lilith has existed at least since 2500 BC maybe much older. In the Jewish tradition, the main source for the Lilith myth is in a book that was uh, of uncertain authorship and origin and also date, but say somewhere between the sixth and the ninth century called the Alphabet of Ben Sira. Um, and it's in this book that the story is told. And this is the, this story is the reason why feminists or one of, the, one of the many reasons why feminists look to Lilith. The story is this. When Adam was first created by God, his consort was not Eve, but Lilith. So Lilith was Adam's first wife, was his first female consort. And they got into an argument. They were both created from the earth. 
the same time, not the story of Eve being created from Adam's rib, but that Adam and Eve, Adam and Lilith were both created from the earth at the same time, right, equally. And they got into an argument. And it was a sexual argument. Adam says, I want to be on top. And Lilith says, I'm co-equal with you. There's no reason you should be on top. Why should you dominate me? And they get into this big argument. And at some point in the argument, Lilith, who is not only a strong female figure, but clearly a, 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 a mystic or a magician, utters the holy secret name of God and flies away. And she goes to the shores of the Red Sea. And we could translate it to a modern idiom. We could say, she says, you know, forget this, I'm going to the beach, right? She goes to the shores of the Red Sea. Adam, who really comes off a little pathetic in the story, goes to God and he complains, said, the woman that you gave me, she's already left me. So God says, sends three angels to go retrieve Lilith from the shores of the Red Sea. And now there are two versions. This text exists in a number of different versions. But in this passage, there are two versions. In one of them, God says, go bring back Lilith. But if she refuses, don't force her. In the other version, God says, go bring back Lilith. And if she refuses, force her to come back. There are two different texts, two different manuscripts in these two different versions. It's unclear which is which is more authentic. Anyway, there are these two versions circulating. So the angels, and the, the, these angels are called Senoi, Sansenoi, and Semengulf. And they go to where Lilith is by the Red Sea. And they say, you know, you gotta come back. And she says, no, I'm not coming back. And they say, well, you know, things are going to go really bad for you if you don't come back. No coming back. And then they say, you know, well, if you don't come back, we're going to start killing your children. And she says, you know, I am made to kill babies. That's my thing is to kill babies. I'm going to start killing babies. They say, whoa, dude, we don't want you to do that. And she says, okay. I'll agree not to kill babies, right? If when mothers have babies, they say the names of you, the three angels. That's the story, okay? Now, let me say two things about the story. First of all, so then, from then on, and unto this very day, there's a Jewish practice of writing the names of these three angels and putting it into a crib for newborns. That's to this day that's done, amulets with the names of these three angels. That's one thing to say about it. The other thing to say about it is it's clear why feminists would like at least the first, until the very end of the story, would like this story, right? It's this idea of woman not being created from Adam, but in equal co-creation, standing up for her rights. And when she's unable to basically, you know, convince the man that, uh, that she should have equal rights, she, she leaves, she goes away, she goes to the beach. So it's clear why you might look to this figure if you're looking in the Jewish tradition for a strong, defiant female figure. What about this end part about how she says, I kill babies, that's my thing, right? That's weird, it's a weird plot twist. Doesn't seem to be, have anything to do with any of the rest of the story. 
seems almost to be maybe from a different myth. So there's a, there's a, uh, a Jewish feminist named Aviva Cantor who wrote about this um, some time ago. Uh, and she speculated, I have no idea if this is true, but she speculated, she said, you know what it sounds like? It sounds to her like there was, that the first, the, the, the story up until that very ending was a woman's story, was a folk tale told by women from generation to generation orally, like a secret feminist tradition being told about female defiance. And then when the patriarchs got their hand on the story, they tacked on to this other part about how Lilith is an evil baby killer. And they tacked that on to the end of the story. That, that's her reading of it. They turned it into a male story. But nonetheless, the story still has that potential. Right? And again, this is, this is from a text from, say, the, somewhere between the 6th and 9th century, made available so that in the 1970s, when Jewish feminists are trying to find something in tradition, they say, you know what? Lilith is our girl. Let's call a magazine Lilith. Let's have a music festival. Let's pronounce ourselves servants of Lilith or, or worshipers of Lilith. Um, so it's it's a one might say that the the Lilith is a it's a it's almost like a Rorschach test for for Jewish spirituality. Tell me what you think of Lilith, and I'll tell you who you are. This, that that story um, is reappears in transformed form in Kabbalah in the 13th century. So they, you know, the, 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 in the Zohar, you will find traces of that story elaborated and transformed and retold in a thousand different ways. But she's still um, a baby killer in- uh... Definitely a baby killer in the Zohar. She's also a seducer of men, which is also a big thing about Lilith, but that's always, that's been the case from back from Apparently it was true in ancient, in Mesopotamia, when they were writing those magic bowls. Do you know about the magic bowls? That they, people would write magic bowls that were divorce certificates. They were divorcing Lilith. And then they would write a divorce certificate on a magic bowl and bury it under the house. And the, 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 the bowl would say, I hereby divorce you, Lilith. And it's like trying to get rid of my demon lover. So Kabbalah was uh, historically written by men um, and there's much patriarchy and much sexism in it. Um, but it's also in many of its forms, highly poetic and highly mythological. And it does seem as though the Kabbalists were tapping into their unconsciouses, their um, just letting their imaginations roam free in a way that it almost is as though their imaginations were bursting the limits of the social frameworks that they were in. And that's why there are many dimensions of Kabbalah which seem heretical, even though the undoubtedly people writing it were very pious Jews and observing all the laws and so forth. And it's also true with the gender stuff. So there's a lot of gender hierarchy in Kabbalistic mythology but there's also elements in it that seem to be bursting those limits. And what feminists who have been studying Kabbalah over the last several decades have been doing is to try to push on those areas where the 
poetic, imaginative, um, mythological dimensions burst the limits of their social frames. They are, these are, especially the Zohar is a poetic, mythological, imaginative text. There's all kinds of stuff in it that, that is out of control. It's not a philosophical treatise where everything is logically related to everything else. It's a poetic thing where things are pouring out. Um, Gershom Shalom, who was the founder of the academic study of Kabbalah in the early 20th century, he calls the rebellion of the images. It's a great phrase. It's a very sort of Jungian phrase, actually. The rebellion of the images. He said, once the Kabbalists started getting in touch with this female imagery, this female uh, mythological imagery, the images got away from them in some way. It, they were, the images were stronger than their attempt to control them. And this is a debate among people, academic studiers of Kabbalah and feminist uh, practitioners. It's a real debate to what extent these texts can be uh, uh, redeemed or used for feminist purposes, it's a real debate. But it certainly has, for people who want to be in the tradition, but also subverting the tradition, Kabbalah is a really good place to go because there's all kinds of stuff that's sort of out of control. There were undoubtedly always some women who studied Kabbalah, right? They, it, it was not encouraged, but there were undoubtedly always women who studied Kabbalah. Um, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that from the very beginning, there were non-Jews who studied Kabbalah. So from the very beginning, from like probably the 14th century or maybe even earlier, maybe even 13th century, there were Christian Kabbalists who saw the Jews developing Kabbalah and they said, you know what? There's something in this that reminds me of Christianity. And, there, and Christ, the whole realm of Christian Kabbalah developed from the, really from the beginning, saying that Kabbalah is, an, is the most ancient form of Christian truth. So there have always been non-Jews to study Kabbalah. Actually, other Christian Kabbalists thought it was a good way to convert Jews to Christianity. But let's leave those people aside. There were people who really believed that Kabbalah contained the truth and contained Christian truth. Um, so there have always been non-Jews um, who studied Kabbalah, and uh, uh, and as the, as there is today. So you know, basically, the Kabbalists understood that once they started writing things down, that it, anybody could read them. When I say practitioners, what I mean here are teachers and rabbis um, and all kinds of spiritual guides. And I'm not necessarily talking about magical rituals or, or, or that kind of stuff, just people teaching, you know, in the Jewish world, how to understand Judaism. Right? So the same rituals that other Jews do, but understanding them in a Kabbalistic way. And then feminist Kabbalists teaching them to understand the rituals in a feminist Kabbalistic way. So when I say practitioners, people who are not, this guy, I mean the, not academics who are supposed to be relatively objective, but people who are, who are engaging the teaching of Kabbalah because they're trying to give people a spiritual path. So I, I know people who are feminist teachers of Kabbalah who are maybe also inventing their own rituals, but also just teaching this, this thing that all Jews do, this ritual, let me see how you can understand it 
in a feminist Kabbalistic way. There's a movement uh, that I'm particularly uh, uh, a fan of called the, the Hebrew Priestess Movement. It's called Kohenet, K-O-H-E-N-E-T, which is simply the Hebrew word for Hebrew Priestess. It's called Kohenet, the Hebrew Priestess Institute. Um, and it is, uh, brings together, their teachings bring together Kabbalistic ideas with more general feminist spirituality with goddesses and Wiccan influences and a, a very sort of open uh, a spectrum of spiritualities, very much focus on goddess worship. Uh, one of the leading figures is a woman named Jill Hammer, who lives in New York. She's a, she's a teacher. She teaches at the Academy for Jewish Religion um, in, in Yonkers. Um, she's also an ordained rabbi from the Jewish Theological Seminary. But she also really started her own version of a feminist Judaism. So she's a scholar, a real serious, rigorous scholar, but she's also a practitioner in the sense of being a spiritual leader and guide. She also invents a lot of her own rituals, um, a very, very creative person. You can do um, that. For some reason, I always felt as though for some like very mystical traditions, that the, the mysteries were so closed and they were set and you had to do it a certain way to, you know, the best practices were already set so that you can get in contact with God, but it sounds a lot more flexible. The, the, the kinds of movements that have developed over the last several decades, you know, basically that emerged out of the 1960s and all religions and all forms of culture have really burst a lot of those limits. It is certainly true that in circles of traditional Kabbalists, things are very, kept very secret. Uh, I have a friend who studied in a, a, uh, a Kabbalistic uh, school in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. There was a particular ritual, he said, even to be in the room when they did it, you had to have like been studying in the school for a number of years and have reached a certain level, in or, even in order to them to allow you into the room. I grew up in a form of Judaism that was very rationalistic. I think I may have mentioned that. Uh, that was really dominated by the tradition of Jewish philosophy, most associated with Maimonides, who was a philosopher in in Spain and North Africa in the 12th century, um, and very influenced by Aristotle. And the kind of Judaism I was brought up in was very, very much uh, very rationalist. And as I say, I only got in touch with Kabbalah when I was in my early 20s after I'd stopped being Orthodox. And it was years and years later that I, that an elderly uncle, like a great uncle, said to me that my great grandfather studied Kabbalah. And I never knew this before. Um, and that he spent the last years of his life. He, he, he was born in Europe. He lived in New York for much of his life. Um, but he spent his last years in Jerusalem in the, in the uh, I guess it must have been the 1920s. Um, and he, in his last years, all he did was study Kabbalah all day. And I had no idea. I, was, I must have been, when I heard the story, I must have been in my 40s already. And I'd never heard it before. And I said to this, to this relative, I said, well, did he have a copy of the Zohar, this main work that I'm obsessed with, that I studied day and night? Did he have a copy? And he said, my, this elderly relative said, yes, he had a copy, and I have his copy. 
And I said, so do you study from it? I said, are there notes in it? Because I thought, wow, if I could see my great grandfather's notes on this text that I study constantly. He said, I don't know. I've never opened it. I said, why not? He said, because when this man who was my great grandfather would study it with the man who was this elderly relative's father. So when his father and grandfather, his father and grandfather studied it, they wouldn't let him in the room. It was such a, they viewed it as such a secret practice. They wouldn't let this young fellow into the room. And he said, so for me, it's a closed book. So he has the book. <laughs> he since passed away, actually. And I don't know where the book is today. And I thought, you're kidding. And when I, when I had a big birthday some years ago, my wife thought it would be amazing if she could somehow convince this elderly relative to give me the book. Because I think he's, I'm probably the only one in the huge extended family who studies it. And she called him and she hinted around and hinted around and hinted around. And either he didn't understand what she was saying or he didn't want to understand it. Because I think the idea was I'm not Orthodox. And I thought there's no way he would have you know, given this holy book to me, um, even though I'm probably the only one in the big Senate family who studies it. Um, so it's, there are still all kinds of restrictions in various ways on this kind of study. And throughout the history of Kabbalah, there's been a tension between the people who wanted to make it more secret and the people who wanted to make it more open. But the, the Zohar, which is this work that was produced in Spain in the 13th century, um, was, re was recently translated. For the very first time in history, the entire thing was translated into English. It took 20 years. A team of translators headed by a, a man named Danny Matt translated for this. the first ever complete translation of the Zohar, the thing that was, it was written in the, in, you know, 700 years ago. How, how thick is it? How many, I guess it was pamphlets, right? So many different pamphlets. The, the translation, the English translation is 12 volumes, 12 thick hardcover volumes. Um, when it's printed in the original language, which is Aramaic, it's usually four volumes, but a very small Aramaic print. Um, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, but today it's in, it's in English and anyone could pick it up. Uh, you can get it on Kindle, on Amazon. I mean, you, you know, it's, now it's available, it's out there. Anybody could read it. I don't know if they would understand it, but anybody could read it. Do you mind if I ask you how you incorporate Kabbalistic thought into your life? Like, I'm guessing that unlike man, many of these young witches, you're not exactly singling out Lilith and contemplating Lilith, but I'm guessing that if you've written a book about the other, the other side, that that's something that you contemplate as you're going through Kabbalah. Yes, I, I, for me, it is uh, a, a totally engaging experience in the sense that studying this work and studying other Kabbalistic texts are very demanding intellectually in many ways, on many, many levels. My own religious practice is, I understand my own religious practice in Kabbalistic terms. So everything, every, you know, I'm not Orthodox, but I do a lot of Jewish traditions and practices. And when I do them, for me, their meaning is always the Kabbalistic meaning. Um, I left Orthodoxy when I was 20. And I really left all Jewish practice for a couple of years. And when I came back to Jewish practice, it was through Kabbalah and through the 
Kabbalistic meaning in the very non-Orthodox, very heterodox, perhaps heretical way that I understand Kabbalah. Uh, so when I engage in meditation practices, when I engage in ritual practices, uh, when I engage in celebrating the holidays, for me, the meaning of every spiritual practice I do is infused with Kabbalistic ideas. I, I don't want to compare myself to this person, but there, uh, one of the early Hasidic rabbis um, uh, in, the, in the late 18th century, his name was Pinchas of Koretz, he loved the Zohar, he loved this book work, and he wrote in his main book, he says, I thank God that I was created in the era when the Zohar was revealed in the world because the Zohar has kept me within Judaism. And it's, it's an astonishing statement. I mean, he's some rabbi in some little village in Poland, right? you know, undoubtedly just looks like a pious Jew, and he's saying it's the Zohar that has kept him Jewish, and it's an astonishing statement. And I'm not exactly sure what he meant by it, but I know, what, for me, it is very literal. I think without Kabbalah, I would, not, I would have no relationship to Jewish practice at all, but I only came back to it and, and I'm immersed in it because I was able to give it these Kabbalistic meanings in my own very heterodox, perhaps heretical, or what, what perhaps Orthodox people might consider heretical uh, interpretations. But the Zohar, what specifically about its poetic sense would be appealing to a modern audience, to some, like an audience like my audience, like these young witches who want to know more about Lilith and connect more with her? There have been hundreds and thousands of texts written. And some of them I like more and some of them I like less. The ones I like more are the ones that are poetic, that are mythological, um, that are not linear. The ones I like less are the ones that try to systematize it and with charts and with to make it something you can memorize uh, and systematize uh, and outline. I don't like that. For me, that who needs it? Right? I want something that will activate fire in my imagination. And the Zohar specifically is written in that way. It's written as stories, as riddles, as homilies, as parables, um, as wild mythological descriptions of gods and goddesses. Underlying it, there's some things you need to know to read it, but you also need to forget those things when you read it. So here's the example I, I like to give. There was a, at the late 19th century, there was a French poet named Mallarmé. Mallarmé was an avant-garde poet, and he did wild things with the French language. Took it apart, made it mean different things, like any good poet, really, but in this very avant-garde way. Now, to read Mallarmé, you have to know French, if you can read him in the original. You have to know French. But if you sit there with a French dictionary and a French grammar book, you'll have no idea what he was saying zero idea what he was doing because he's not about dictionary and grammar but you have to know french in order to read it the zohar is kind of like that there are things you need to know there are ten spirot there there, there are various things you need to know it, basic background knowledge but if that's all you know you don't you're not reading the zohar but for me they take all that stuff for granted in the same way that malarme assumes you know french but that's not what they're interested in 
they're interested in working with it and turning it into poetry and turning it into imagination. So what, what I don't like when people teach Kabbalah today, what I don't like is when they give constantly giving out charts and systems and drawing on blackboards and, and with numbers and, and, and something that you can turn into a system or a, a technology. You have to be open to their poetry, to the imagination, to the way in which all the charts and all the systems and the hierarchies get subverted and turned over and, 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 and you know, change into their opposites. Is there a certain book or series of books that you recommend, maybe a young witch who doesn't know much about Judaism or anything, any background for the Zohar? Is there anything you recommend that she or they read first? So it's hard to give a one size fits all answer. Let me, I'll give you a couple of recommendations. There is a classic, an old classic work written, I don't know, sometime in the 20th century, but uh, called The Hebrew Goddess. Uh, by a man named Raphael Patai, P-A-T-A-I. And he really uh, brings out the mythological dimension of of the Shekhinah, of this divine female figure. And uh, and he's also very grounded in the text. So he, what, what I like about this book is he connects it to world mythologies. He draws parallel between Kabbalistic mythology and all kinds of other world mythologies. Uh, and it's very provocative. He, he argues that there's, a, there's an actual connection between them, a historical connection. I don't think that's true. Um, but certainly when he's, he shows you the similarities, he really makes you see Kabbalah as mythology. And I really recommend this book. Another book for the more academically inclined, <laughs> I would recommend a book uh, called by, by a man named Arthur Green, who's one of the leading scholars and spiritual teachers of Kabbalah and, and Hasidism today. Um, he wrote a book uh, as, as an introduction to the new translation of the Zohar. It's a short book and very easy to read uh, called A Guide to the Zohar and his name is Arthur Green. Another thing I would recommend is getting the works of this rabbi who I mentioned earlier, Jill Hammer. Um, and is really as an introduction to how someone steeped in Jewish texts has opened up those texts to all kinds of feminist and goddess-centered practices. So anything by Jill Hammer, uh, I would highly recommend. I'll say a very traditional thing, which is it's important to find a good teacher. There are a lot of teachers that are, are I, whose methods I prefer less, who I feel are not, are, are um, teaching Kabbalah in a way that I don't think is true to the tradition. Um, it's not even true to the heretical interpretation of the tradition. It's basically, you know, overlaying Kabbalah with standard New Age words, and that could be about anything. Um, but I'd say find a, a teacher who really knows the tradition, is really steeped in it, but is also open to uh, uh, all kinds of other kinds of influences. Um, something I would mention here is there's something called the Jewish Renewal Movement, which was started with something that emerged out of the 1960s, which was very much uh, doing this kind of thing that has been doing it for a long time. And I would recommend looking into that, especially for, especially for Jews. <laughs> but uh, uh, maybe for other people as well. 
what would be your suggestion on how a young witch, let's say that they are going to look more into, it seems like it's very important that if you're going to venerate Lilith, it would be probably a good idea to start looking up as well into Zohar, I think. It just sounds like it would be a great idea to have that sort of grounding. So what are your suggestions on how this witch who's very dedicated to Lilith, what are some ways that she can move forward in a constructive way, according to what the Kabbalah says? Well, I, you know, if you're going to look at traditional Kabbalistic texts, of course, you'll have to read them against the grain. They will be condemning Lilith. <laughs> and you will, in their, if you want to recuperate them for a feminist or, you know, Wiccan practice, you're going to have to look at those texts and read them for what they seem to be repressing. So I think that's an important thing to note. Um, and that's why reading some of the feminist authors who've come out in the last, you know, say four or five decades um, is important because they, they can really be guides as to how to redeem the tradition or how to find those subversive elements of the tradition. Find some of these feminist writings that have come out in the last few decades by authors who are also steeped in the tradition in order to know how to do it. In my, in my view, and maybe because I'm an academic, so I, 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 I value rigor, it's kind of a, if you want to really do this, it's a commitment to think, yes, I want to be in tradition, and I want to subvert tradition at the same time. So I want to somehow be in part of a struggle that's probably been going on, to go back to the, something we said at the very beginning, it's probably been going on for five millennium. The question of who is Lilith, that's the question you started me with, right? The question of who is Lilith has probably been the object of struggle for four or five millennia. To do it seriously, in, in, in my view, you would say, yes, I want to be part of this struggle. I want to be part of the struggle. So in order to be part of the struggle, you have to know about it. You have to really know about uh, uh, what, what the struggle has been about. You have to look at text and say, look, this text is denigrating Lilith, but I can see that it's because maybe the, the male authors of this text were afraid of Lilith and maybe secretly desiring Lilith. Or as in these myths of God taking Lilith as a mistress, maybe not so secretly desiring Lilith. And why is Lilith so powerful? Getting in touch with this figure that has been so powerful for millennia that the men writing these texts have been desiring and hating and repressing and liberating and writing about and imagining and fantasizing and getting divorced from. What is this figure so powerful? By the way, there's one more book I would recommend. <laughs> I, a Jungian uh, psychologist, last, and I, know I can't remember his first name, it, his last name is Hurwitz, I think it's H-E-R-W-I-T-Z, wrote a book about Lilith from a Jungian perspective. Very, very good book. Again, a little bit more for the academically inclined, but a really great book about Lilith. Are there any other projects that you're coming out with? Uh, I know that you have that book, Divine and Demonic in the Poetic Mythology of the Zohar. I'm currently writing a book called, um, well, its working title is Perpetual Crisis, Perpetual Rebirth, Confronting Anger, Evil, and Death Through the Zohar. 
that's the working title of the book. That's what I've been doing this summer. Um, it emerges out of some teaching I've been doing, written for a broad, much broader audience, broader educated audience, rather than specialists in the field. Um, and and to, I do a lot of teaching outside of the university with all kinds of ages and groups. Um, and I'm trying to write a book now that is more like my teaching rather than, than more an academic writing for academics. And that's what I'm hoping this book is going to be about really speaking to about three topics that are, I think, important today, anger, evil, and death, the things that things people are really thinking about. That's the, uh, uh, the project I'm, I'm most immersed in right now. I want to show you something. Yeah, absolutely. And this is from a particular uh, class that I taught, but I've used um, to teach about Lilith. I, I, it was actually a, a multi-day class that I taught some years ago at the, at, the, at the Conference of the Jewish Renewal Movement. And I started each class with us, like almost like yoga, right? Like we, I had people, you know, crouch down like the man on the, on the left side, right? First experience what it's like to be him. And then stand up and put your hands up and imagine what it's like to be her. And I call it sort of Kabbalistic yoga. Crouch down, be, be the Kabbalist, be the male patriarchal Kabbalist. Now, be the goddess. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off. <laughs>